0: We continue this morning in 1 Peter, chapter 1, with the New Testament lesson from verses 10 through 12. The text is a wonderful reminder to us of some things that we may, perhaps, perhaps, take for granted. And thus, as such, I think the text functions as a a sort of way of kindling gratitude in us. So we'll make two points. They should be there on the insert that you have. Two points salvation and the Spirit. Salvation and the Spirit. So, first, then, salvation. The text begins in verse 10 with concerning this salvation. Now, we might ask which salvation or what salvation? Well, it's the salvation that Peter has just outlined and which we've looked at over the last two weeks. The salvation which comes through Christ's resurrection and ushers us into a living hope. The salvation which consists of an inheritance kept in heaven for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation which will result in praise and honor and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed, his full unveiling. The salvation of our souls, which is the outcome of our faith. This salvation, this salvation, which includes all that is ours now by faith and all that will be realized when we possess our inheritance. This salvation is the salvation which is in view. Put differently... The prophets spoke of both the first and second coming of Christ as one package deal, one grand act of salvation, one undiminished, eternal, cosmic, death-destroying salvation. Concerning this salvation, the text says, the prophets spoke. This salvation, then, is the theme of Scripture. Every other theme is secondary. Scripture is not about everything. It is about this grand design of salvation and the execution of it by God in Christ through the Spirit. And notice the text says they spoke of the grace that was to come to you, meaning to us. The prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to us. So from beginning to the end, right, from the Old Testament. All the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. In the old as in the new, salvation is by grace. They spoke what the prophets spoke of? They spoke of this grand salvation wrought in Jesus Christ. And in speaking of that, they spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Salvation is always, ever, by grace, and not by works. This is the decisive difference between Christianity and every other worldview. In every other system, there's some either mechanical or organic or spontaneous set of works that have to be done and offered up to God for acceptance or for self-improvement or for peace or whatever it is. In the Christian vision, it is free, sovereign, glorious, abundant, lavish, mighty, undeserved grace. That is what has come to us. And this gracious salvation predicted and spoken of by the prophets, right? It comes through, the text says, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. That is what the prophet spoke of, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Suffering, then glory. Something that that Peter resisted deeply at first, as we often do, right? Peter protested when Jesus said he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer death. And Jesus said that's a satanic protest. The order remains. Suffering, then glory, first for Christ, then for us. Suffering belongs to this age. It characterizes in many ways this age. Glory characterizes the age to come. So, the gracious salvation, of which all the prophets spoke, was Christ in his suffering, and then Christ in his full glory. The prophets spoke of Christ. They spoke of his sufferings. And here we would have to unpack the whole Old Testament. But we could pick a couple of things, a couple of highlights. They spoke of his sufferings. When they spoke of the lamb that he provided in that mysterious story of Abraham's binding Isaac for sacrifice. You hear of Christ's sufferings in the Old Testament lesson this morning. These anguished cries of the psalmist in Psalm 22. Where there the Messiah cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They spoke of his sufferings in the whole sacrificial system. With its rivers of blood. And concerning this long prophesied, long foreseen suffering, Peter himself, when it materialized, was an eyewitness. Peter saw this suffering come to fruition. And later in this same letter, he will write this. Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by his wounds, you have been healed. The prophets spoke extensively. Extensively about the sufferings of the Messiah which have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The prophets also spoke of the subsequent glories repeatedly and extensively. They spoke of these glories when they spoke of the serpent's head being crushed, when they spoke of the nations being converted and enveloped in peace, when they spoke of the end of wars and the destruction of death and the annihilation of evil when they spoke of an everlasting banquet of joy and a renewed creation. They spoke of his sufferings, and they spoke of his glory. Christianity is not a novel thing. The Hebrew prophets for millennia spoke of and prophesied of Christ. Peter, who saw Christ suffer, also had a glimpse of this coming glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the glory of Christ, and he touched it in his encounters with the risen Jesus. That is the author of this letter. So Peter, then, never breaks this um, order, right? this conjunction, suffering, then glory. As it was for Christ, so it is for us. Last week, he spoke of the glory that will result for those who suffer faithfully when Christ is revealed. Later in chapter 4, he'll say this. Again, this is sort of ahead in our series, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says in chapter 5 that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And later at the end of the letter, he says that God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Eternal glory, sharing or participating in the glory that Christ himself now has, is the vocation and the destiny Of every Christian, so it's of these sufferings and these unspeakable glories which follow that the prophets spoke of. This is the salvation that the apostle refers to when he opens our text with concerning this salvation. So that's salvation, and that brings us to the second point, which is the Spirit. The Spirit, the prophets who spoke thus we are told, searched diligently, the text says, intently, with the greatest care, trying to figure out what the time or the circumstances were to which the Spirit of Christ within them was pointing when that Spirit indicated the sufferings and the glory of Christ. What an intriguing and a rare glimpse into the psychology of the prophets, this is, there is really nothing like this in scripture. We should not think of the prophets as mere conduits somehow, either caught up into some kind of ecstasy or not, but simply conduits through whom the word flowed out as if they were merely dictated to. This text tells us the prophets were active under the word. They engaged and they wrestled and they searched and they questioned and they puzzled. Like Daniel pouring over the book of Jeremiah in exile to find out the time that this exile will end. Or like Luke, the writer of the third gospel, saying that he examined, investigated everything carefully before he wrote. The prophets... When they are engaged by the Spirit, their humanity, their natural gifts, their aptitudes are engaged. They grappled with the timing and the circumstances about the very things they were predicting. It's a remarkable statement of these men and women of God in the Old Testament, under the word of God, engaging it with their whole psychology, their whole souls. And notice the text says they were trying to find the time and the circumstance to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing. Now, there is something remarkable here as well. The prophets spoke by the spirit of Christ. It was the spirit of Christ in them, the preexistent, eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It is his spirit that spoke by the prophets. So it is true. We say it often that the prophets testify to Christ. But this text says Christ testifies through the prophets. It's quite a remarkable way, and it will change the way you look at your Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks of Christ, to be sure. But Christ himself speaks in the Old Testament. So this is a a potent text for establishing the reformed conviction that Christ is truly present in the Old Testament, under the promises of the Old Testament, and all of these aged, institutions, and the prophecies, and the types, and the sacrifices, that Jesus Christ is present and active to save. But beyond that is this conviction that Christ himself speaks. Christ himself speaks in the Old Testament text through the Spirit. And yet, there is this movement from one testament to the other. From the old to the new. Because in this intense searching, this questioning about time and circumstance, the text says it was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves. But you. That's an astonishing thing. The prophets came to know that what their ministry was about was not Fundamentally, or at least ultimately, themselves, or even Israel, or even their generation. It was about you. They came by revelation to know that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of these things. So, Christ is in the Old Testament. But, but, he's there by shadow. By type, by pointer, by sign. The full unveiling, the substance, the open display of what the prophets predicted, that comes when Christ appears in the flesh and blood, in the new covenant. Yes, Isaiah was ministering to his contemporaries. Ultimately, though, he was ministering to you. And we're told here that the prophets came to realize this. It was revealed to them that they were ministering to us, to you and to me. So, Let's just pause and think about what this might mean for some of our basic settings as Christians, and especially here at Westminster as Christians in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. So I'm going to say a few basic things here, which hopefully we're all agreed on, but they're important because this text establishes them. First, it means the Old Testament is for you. The Old Testament is for you. This cannot be put strongly enough in an age which finds all sorts of ways to denigrate the Old Testament or shelve it or where it's often held that God works in different ways in different eras and whole swaths of the Bible don't apply to us today because they only apply maybe to a certain dispensation, a certain period of time. In an age where people tend to slice the Bible up and dice it, often emphasizing the discontinuities between the parts, right? The Reformed are not and never have been dispensationalists, meaning people who tend to see God having multiple plans or multiple peoples or parallel plans. There are dozens of reasons for this, but what I want you to see is our text here today is one of them. right? We are told here, that the Old Testament is a Christian book inspired and spoken by the Spirit of Christ. One cannot simply just read the Old Testament as a Jew and then the New Testament as a Christian. The prophet spoke the word to us, they are your ministers, your servants. And there's a couple of really important implications for this. There's three of them. Here's the first one. The first one is there is then one Bible. Not two or three Bibles for different people. There, just as there's one Lord, he has one unified plan. It, or, it unfolds organically through time. It's been historically put this way. The, old is, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old, concealed. The old is in the new, revealed. There's one Bible. Now, you know, the biggest things are sometimes the most obvious things. The things we take for granted, and thus we overlook them. We don't think about them. Here's one of them. The inspired decision by the early church to retain the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Have you, you ever thought about that? If it was left up to a company of moderns, it's not likely that we would have had the same outcome. This was a providentially directed decision by the early church to retain the Old Testament as Christian scripture, to read it in their services, to preach from it, and then to set the writings of the apostles alongside of it without discarding it. So that's the first thing the text teaches us here, one Bible. In addition to there being one unified Bible, the second thing is there's one body, one church. We are in the same body as the Old Testament prophets. They were speaking and ministering to us. Yes, of course they spoke to their contemporaries, but also, ultimately, for us. The prophets are ministers of the word to both Old Testament and New Testament saints. And so there are not two churches. There's one church. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are our fathers. The prophets are our teachers. So that's the second thing. There's one Bible. There's one church, one people of God. And the third thing is... There's one spirit. We've already seen in the text that the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the glories to follow were spoken by the prophets through the spirit of Christ. In serving us this way, Peter says, they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. That's what the prophets spoke of. What they spoke of is what the apostles preached. That's what he's saying there. What the prophets spoke of is what the apostles preached. And there's something wonderfully unexpected. It's it's kind of surprising. It's counterintuitive description of the Holy Spirit here. Notice the text says, the prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ. That's a curious phrase. The prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ. And the apostles spoke by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I mean, you'd expect the opposite. You'd expect Peter to say that the prophets spoke by the Holy Spirit and the apostles preached by the Spirit of Christ. I mean, after all, The spirit of Christ means the spirit sent by the risen and ascended Christ. So the point here seems to be this. The spirit that spoke through the prophets is the same spirit sent by the risen and ascended Christ. The spirit that spoke through the prophets is the spirit that speaks through the apostles. There is then one spirit who spoke through the prophets and the apostles. There is one Bible. There is one church. There is one spirit. So I want to conclude, and I want to do this by looking at the final phrase in our text. Even angels long to look into these things. The text refers or it pictures angels as sort of straining and peering to see into the things that have been predicted by the prophets and have now been preached to you through the Apostles. So while there's unity, it's important to recognize there is movement. There's, there's new unveilings. There's kind of stunning fulfillments of the Lord's ancient plan when Christ appears. The unfolding of what the prophets spoke is not boring. Heaven does not sit up there and say, well, we've already seen the movie in advance. We know what's going to happen, right? The prophets grasp and strain at what it might mean. And in the actual accomplishment of what they spoke of, in the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah, there is fresh and startling and astonishing light. That's the marvelous thing among many marvelous things about the New Testament. It is a prophesied fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, and yet it does it in a kind of stunning way. So the types, the shadows... They flee, and the mystery of Christ Himself appears. It's like seeing a long shadow for hundreds of years, and now the shadow vanishes, and then the figure casting the shadow stands forth in front of you. So while we have one people, one Bible, one Spirit, it's not a flat oneness. It's an unfolding, blossoming unity. And you stand in the privileged position in the time of full flowering. Angels long to see these things, which were concealed in the Old Testament, sort of wrapped up in a mystery, not yet out in the open, hidden for ages and generations, and are now, in this time, between the first and second coming, the time of the church, the time of the last days, now these things are revealed openly. Paul speaks in Ephesians 3 of the manifold wisdom of God. He says the multifaceted wisdom of God once veiled but now revealed in the church. And he says this wisdom is a thing that's on display that the angels peer in And gaze upon. I mean, think about this. The angels are fiery seraphs. Right? Spiritual beings. As Aquinas would say, they are pure intelligences. They hymn God in perpetual glory and light day and night. And yet they peer in and they strain to see what is happening in Christ in the church in this era of glorious messianic fulfillment. And this prompts one scholar to call the church the graduate school for the angels. How is that for a privileged conception of the holy, catholic, and apostolic church? It's the graduate school for the angels. And we have our Lord's own words. Jesus speaks of his own appearance and his own ministry, and he says this. Blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So, I mean, do we have the proper joy, right? the right sense of gratitude, just for being in Christ, just for eyes which have seen what our eyes have seen? and ears which hear what our ears hear. Just for the enormous privilege of living now, in the new covenant, in the time about which the prophets searched and inquired carefully, trying to strain forward and see what the spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Again, it's a case, I think, where often the biggest and deepest causes of gratitude become taken for granted. And then they become hidden from us. And then they just dry up as sources of praise and thanksgiving. And so I think this text is meant to unearth this source of gratitude and to cultivate praise and thanksgiving. What you have in the gospel despite all the pain and difficulties and perplexities of life in Christ. What has been unveiled to you is something angels who are before the face of God long to see. Something many prophets and righteous people's ears and eyes were denied. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are you because of this. I think Jesus meant something like this when he said... Among those born of women, there's none, arisen none greater than John the Baptist. But whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than that. The benediction and the blessing of God rests on you because you are alive in Jesus Christ, now in the new covenant. And I know many are suffering at this time. And very many of the Christians Peter writes to are suffering or were suffering. And so Peter is reminding them and us of their and our blessedness in Christ in the midst of suffering. That's the purpose of this this passage from Peter. Like the master, so it is for us. Suffering then glory. Nevertheless, we partake of the glory now. We taste the glory now. Even now, we are the envy of angels, of righteous men and prophets what the prophets foretold, what Christ has accomplished has now been proclaimed to you and interpreted to you by the apostles. You have been let in. You have been let in on the cosmos' great secret, the great mystery, which is God and Jesus Christ. Through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the risen Christ himself speaks to us Teaches us now in Holy Scripture. That means that we are sitting in the graduate school for the angels. It's like a continuing adult education thing, adult and young person education thing. It's the ongoing class that began on the night of the resurrection. And it was begun by Jesus himself, and we heard of it in the gospel lesson from Luke 24 when the newly risen Jesus overtook these two despondent and shattered disciples, and he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There it is again. Where did Peter get this conjunction, suffering and glory? He got it from the lips of Jesus. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then the Bible study, we all wish we could have sat in on. The text tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of Scripture speaks of Jesus Christ, his sufferings, and his subsequent glory. And that means Christ himself is your treasure, your blessedness, and your reward. Flee to him. Stay near to him. Refuse to be severed from him, even in this time of confusion and distress and pain. Listen, you are blessed. Jesus says, your eyes have seen things. Your ears have heard things of the messianic suffering and glory that angels and righteous men and prophets have been denied. You are blessed and called unto eternal glory. Even angels long to look into the things which are yours in Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God for your abundant, undeserved privilege. Amen.